you'd like to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're looking at John 8, verses 31 through 59. It's on page 894 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Otherwise, John 8, 31 through 59. So we'll pick up right where we left off and we'll finish out the chapter. And this is part of our ongoing series through the Gospel of John. It's just that simple. Because the focus of the Gospel of John is telling the reader how you are to be saved. It's, it's telling the reader what you need to do in order to be saved, and that is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get right to it. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open our eyes to see what you have to say to us. We want to see and hear your word and what this passage has to say, and then we also want your grace so we can apply it to our life. As we live out the Christian life, we want to be living according to your word. So Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are all kinds of different levels and severities of hearing loss, ranging from mild to completely deaf. Um, it's not uncommon for some people to, to just get an accumulation of uh, earwax in the ear canal, and a lot of people don't even know it. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some of us here this morning that have a very mild hearing loss, and it's not discovered until there's an examination, and they see the, the occlusion, and it's removed, and then all of a sudden they say, wow, I can hear a lot better than I did just a moment ago. Very mild. Really no impact at all on our daily life. And then there's some more severe cases of hearing loss, um, sometimes called occupational hearing loss due to long-term exposure to loud noises or somewhat loud noises. In fact, it was very common up until the modern era. It was very common for farmers back when they did not have enclosed cabs and they closed air-conditioned cabs back when they were just open, to, to have, find farmers with hearing loss on one side of their, their ear. If they were this, if they were right-handed, they would put one hand on the steering wheel and they would look back to see where the plow had been. But if they were left-handed, they'd look back like this. Either way, one of their ears would have a hearing loss. So it wouldn't be uncommon at all to find some kind of old-school farmer that says, uh, speak into this ear, this ear's not so good. That's a mild, moderate hearing loss. has a little bit of impact on your life. And then there are others that they have more severe loss. Sometimes during normal aging, our, the bones in our, our middle ears start to ossify. They harden up, and so they kind of fuse together, and uh, they don't move. They don't vibrate like they should, like they're designed to. And we probably all run into somebody that has had this kind of severe hearing loss and you have to get right up in their face and say it again loud and then they can finally kind of hear you. And that really impacts how you live and, and how you communicate. And then of course there's finally, there's just full, full on completely deaf. Either someone is, is born that way through, you know, the development was some kind of uh, was interrupted or wasn't formed right, or maybe through some sort of um, severe traumatic injury, they become completely deaf. They can't hear anything, 
and it, it severely impacts their life. In this last section of John 8, Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews that they were spiritually deaf. Not a mild hearing loss. Not, not a moderate hearing loss. Not, not just the high frequencies. Not difficult to hear, not severe, but completely spiritually deaf. And he tells them why. He says it's because they were not of God, they were of the devil. This is what Jesus delivers to the Jewish leaders. Now this is a warning. There's a warning contained in this passage. And the warning is this, to be spiritually deaf is to be spiritually dead. And this passage, the majority of it, is about the unbelieving Jews and Jesus pointing out their unbelief and their spiritual deafness. And so we might be surprised to learn that in the middle of this passage directed towards these unbelieving Jews, these words actually contain words of assurance for the believer. So that's where we'll spend most of our time in the application, is on words of assurance to the believer. So let's get started. This is 8, 31 through 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. 
Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorified myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We could really call this sermon part two from last week. If you were here last week, you saw the beginning of John chapter eight. Uh, there, there are a lot of similarities between the two. Jesus is still talking to the same group of people, the unbelieving Jews. He's still putting a fine point on what it means to really genuinely follow him or be a true disciple. He's just coming at it from a different angle. In both passages, last week and this week, he begins with a strong declaration. Verse 12, last week said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then this week, it's verse 31. If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So both passages start with this strong declaration from Jesus. And then the rest of the section, both last week and this week, are the Jews kind of picking away and and, and tearing away at what he said, criticizing, trying to counter him, arguing with him, and then it's Jesus refuting them and coming back with, with answers. So there are a lot of similarities between these two passages And in order to do this passage justice, I want to make sure we keep that big picture in mind that that what he's doing is really a continuation of last week. He's laying out the criteria for authentic discipleship. He's telling these people who aren't believers what it really looks like to follow him. And so we want to keep that in mind because in the midst of this passage, we're going to get into the weeds. There are, there are a lot of details in this passage, and at times it may seem like we're getting off track or we're not paying attention to the main point. But I'm going to refuse to gloss over big passages of this section just because we need to save time. I was talking with a colleague not too long ago, and he told me that at his church, um, he has 20 minutes. I said, what do you mean? He said, that's what the elders have told me. 20, 25 minutes max, that's it. And I have to wrap it up. That wouldn't be a good fit for me. And I don't think that would be a good fit for faithful proclamation of the word. Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. And it's difficult to let the word of God unfold and let it breathe if we're not covering every verse. If we're just summarizing huge swaths of scripture with a couple of lines. So we're going to go over each line, and and if you see one of your elders, thank them that they don't put some kind of arbitrary time limit on the Word of God. So I I say all that so that you're prepared. We're going to get into it. I want to keep that big picture in mind, but I also want us to understand we're going to address every verse. 
Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So this is here from John to show us that the people Jesus is addressing are really unbelievers. Because even though it says who had believed in him, and look at back at verse 30, if you have your Bibles open, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So even though they're identified as believing in Jesus, he's going to address them and he's going to say, you are of the devil. Your father is Satan. So this is here to show us, even though they're calling themselves believers, they're not really believers. They may have believed that Jesus was a a standout prophet. They they may have believed that he was on some sort of mid-level temporary assignment from God and And maybe he had something to say that was worth listening to, but they did not have saving faith. They did not trust Christ for salvation. They did not bend their knee in spiritual allegiance. So this tells us that false belief is real. It exists. It's possible for someone to say they believe in Jesus, but yet not really believe in Jesus. And Jesus knew this, And that's why he confronts them. That's why the very first thing he says is, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. These people that are saying you you believe in me, hold on a second, he says. This is what's necessary if you really want to call yourself a believer. He says, if you abide in my word. Last week, we looked at the hallmarks of discipleship, dying to self, obedience to Christ at any cost, unqualified allegiance, So he's here still talking about genuine discipleship, but he's just coming at it from a different angle. He's saying true disciples are disciples for life. True disciples start off believing in Jesus, but they also finish believing in Jesus. They don't fizzle out. They don't fall away. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Spiritual truth. Spiritual freedom. Jesus is talking spiritual. They're still thinking physical, material, earthly. He's in the spiritual realm. Spiritual truth. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of sin. Salvation. uh, Christ. Forgiveness. Knowledge of our origin. Of our purpose. Of our identity. Of our future. Everything that the Bible tells us that is true. Everything we need to know from God about who he is and who we are and what God expects from us. That, specifically the gospel, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Spiritual truth. Spiritual freedom. Freedom from the dominating power of sin. Freedom from condemnation and the condemning nature of sin. Freedom from the eternal penalty of sin. Freedom from the habitual practice of walking in sin. That kind of freedom. That spiritual freedom. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're still thinking material. They're still thinking physical. Like, are we really slaves? And, and look at this. Yes, they were physical descendants of Abraham. Okay. Uh, no, it's not true that they were never enslaved to anyone. Have they forgotten about the Exodus already? Where Moses delivered the people of God out of slavery in Egypt? Did they just conveniently forget about that fact? How about Assyria and Babylon during the exile? Did they forget about that? And even as they speak 
In the first century, they're still a conquered people. They're not a free sovereign nation at this point. They have, they have Roman soldiers literally occupying Jerusalem. They are under the thumb of the Roman emperor at this point. So yes, they are slaves, but they kind of let that go. All, all they see is, no, we're not, we don't need to be set free. They're, they're put off by the suggestion that they're, they're slaves. And they appeal to Abraham. Well, verse 34, Jesus makes it clear. He's talking about spiritual slavery. Truly, truly, I say to you, remember that's a distinctive of the Gospel of John. Whenever we see that truly, truly formula, that's something that's only found in the Gospel of John. And it's a signal, it's a red flag that tells us to pay attention. All the words of God are inspired. They're all important. But when we see those words, that's Jesus giving special focus to what he's about to say. And so we need to pay attention here. Whoever, oh, excuse me, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he's shutting that argument down. He, he's saying, yeah, I understand your physically descendants of, or physical descendants of Abraham. However, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And he's telling them, the Jewish leaders, you practice sin, which means you are a slave to sin. You can take that to the bank. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. This is a reference to Abraham's two sons, Ishmael by Hagar, Isaac by Sarah. One is a, both are physical sons, but one is a son of promise. One is the, the son that, that is the spiritual descendant the free son, the other is the son of slavery. Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 4, and he uses the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, as illustrations of the Jews and Christians, respectively. But here, Jesus is saying that simply appealing to physical bloodline, physical descendancy, and a connection to Abraham, that's not going to cut it. What matters is the heart. What matters is faith. And what matters is their connection to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Hence, verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Only Christ can set people free, free from being slaves to sin. Whether or not they could trace their ancestry back to Abraham, that has absolutely zero bearing on someone's status before God. Zero. Still today. Zero. Zero point zero zero. There is a... Um, relatively recent teaching, but, it, but it's kind of a, a persistent teaching. It's been around since the 1800s that says that God has two tracks, one for his church, one for the Jewish nation. And it doesn't really matter what happens over here or what the New Testament says over here, because don't worry, uh, if you're Jewish by blood, then, then God's going to treat you differently in the end. That's false teaching. The Bible does not support it. It was invented in the 1800s to try to bring unity and make sense of the Bible, but it ignores the covenant teaching that is on the actual pages of the Bible. So there's nothing promised for people of Jewish blood today, and we need to let that go if that's still kind of hanging around or rattling around up here. Um, most of the New Testament is written against that, 
If uh, we looked at places like Galatians uh, 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Most of the teaching in the New Testament is, is a repeated attempt to break down that wall and show there's absolutely no spiritual difference between Jew and Gentile. Even in chapter 8, we come here and Jesus is saying, it does not matter in the least. And these people were much more of a purer bloodline and connection to Abraham than anyone alive today. And he's saying, it matters not. It matters not. So let's, let's let go of that if we've ever caught that from somewhere. Um, it's still around. And it's still being taught by uh, popular and otherwise faithful teachers. It's just incorrect. And we need to let it go. It doesn't, it doesn't accord with scripture. I know that you are Abra- offspring of Abraham. It doesn't matter. Ishmael. Ishmael was literally the physical son of Abraham. He had more of Abraham's blood running through his veins than anyone after him. And he was not saved. He was not of God. What he's telling them is it's never been about physical marks. It's never been about blood birth. It's not about your father. It's about your faith. It's not about your heritage. It's about your heart. It's not about being Jewish. It's about being in Christ. None of those other things matter. The word was not finding a place in their hearts. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. His message was not being received. It was being rejected by these blood descendants of Abraham. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus has an inseparable connection to God the Father. Jesus always says what God says. Jesus always does what God the Father does. He cannot do otherwise. Jesus does not act independently from the Father. We saw this in John 5.19, another truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He says, but you, you have heard from your father. Now he's alluding to the devil, which he'll plainly state in verse 44. The Jewish leaders defend themselves, arguing back and forth by pointing back to their blood connection to Abraham. Abraham is our father. They already said that. They already said that in verse 33. They seem to be really counting on that blood connection to Abraham for their, for their salvation. But it's not about that. It's always been about being a spiritual son of Abraham, not blood descendancy or tracing your family line back to one of the tribes. And this is what Jesus means when he uses the phrase Abraham's children in the next verse. He says, if you were Abraham's children, meaning spiritual sons of Abraham, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing what your father did. They respond by saying, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now, Now they're pulling out all the stops. Not just Abraham. We have God as our father. Uh, not born of sexual immorality. They're, they're talking about spiritual immorality here. They're saying, talking about their pure bloodlines. They, they could trace their lineage literally back to one of the 12 tribes and therefore back to 
to Abraham, and they're saying, look, we don't have any um, Samaritan blood in us. We, don't, we haven't intermarried with uh, the Philistines or, or something like that. We didn't, we didn't come back from the diaspora having been, been uh, tainted by, by non-Jewish blood. They're saying, no, we are. We're all the way. We're 100% Jewish. We're all the way in Abraham. We have God as our father. Jesus shuts them down again. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I come from God. They don't love Jesus. And then verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? He's not asking a legitimate question. He already knows the answer. In fact, he's asking this so that he can answer it himself to give them the answer. This is a teaching moment, not an inquisitive moment. And there has been. There has been a general and pervasive lack of understanding on behalf of Jesus' enemies for a long time now. They think material, physical, when Jesus is talking spiritual. Uh, John 6.52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're thinking material. Jesus is saying, no, I'm not talking about actually eating my body. John 7.33, how is it that you say you will become free? He's not talking about literal freedom. He's talking about spiritual freedom. Abraham is our father. Again, I'm not talking about who your dad was or who you were who your great-great-great-great-grandfather is talking about, spiritual father. So they're not understanding. They're not getting it. There's just this wall that they can't seem to break through. And here's the reason. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. The NIV translates it this way, because you are unable to hear what I say. Another translation, because you are not able to hear what I say. He's saying you are spiritually deaf. Not just hard of hearing, not not just a high frequency loss, you are completely spiritually deaf. Why? Because you are of your father the devil. Why? Because you are not of God. Verse 47. He just traces it all the way down. But that's, that's the bottom line. You are spiritually deaf because you are not of God. You are of your father, the devil. And then he goes on to demonstrate who their spiritual father is by your will and your works. He says, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer. You want to murder me. He doesn't stand in the truth. You don't stand in the truth. In fact, you can't even bear to hear the truth. You're spiritually deaf. Satan lies and desires people to to disbelieve God. You're disbelieving God right now. You are of your father, the devil. You have aligned yourself spiritually with the devil. They're so spiritually blinded. They're so spiritually deaf. They're so much under the influence of Satan that, that Jesus can call them of the devil and refer to him as their spiritual father. Uh, for 46 and 47, which one of you convicts me? Nobody? Nobody here can name a sin that I've done? No, of course they couldn't. He was morally perfect. Jesus never sinned. He's saying, look, here I am. I'm standing here. I'm without sin. None of you can can." can name a sin, and believe me, if they could, they would. They're always trying to find a charge against Jesus. He's without sin. He's telling them the truth. Why don't you believe me? The answer is they are spiritually 
death because they are not of God. At this point in the discussion between Jesus and his enemies, they have lost several key arguments. They, they have been shut down every time. Um, they, they said, well, Abraham, no. He says, if you were Abraham's children, God's our father. He says, no, if God were your father, he, he just keeps shutting them down. And they have no reply. So this is why in verse 48, they get to the level of, yes, you guessed it, name calling. I hope we recognize this for what it is. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Remember the Samaritans were these, these group that, of people that were viewed by the Jews as impure because they had intermarried with, with foreign peoples. They had brought in syncretistic religious worship practices. They were not following scripture. They were not worshiping in the Jerusalem temple. They were, they were viewed as, as off limits to Jews and really worse in a lot of cases than Gentiles. So they call him that name and then they accuse him of, of a demon. That's an ad hominem argument. That's when you attack someone's personal character to try to discredit them. So let's, let's see what's going on here. Let's put it this way. If you're in an argument with someone and you get to the point where you start just slinging mud at them and, and personally attacking them and calling them names, that means you've lost the argument. You, you can't interact with them on the actual points and issues, so you're just throwing mud at them. That's what's going on here. They've lost, but they're not done attacking him, so they are slinging mud and insulting him. Well, verse 49, Jesus denies he has a demon. No, I don't. And then he states that he is honoring his father, but that the Jews were dishonoring him. Now, we don't that's an understatement. We don't want to gloss over what they're doing here. These Jewish leaders were directing slanderous insults at Jesus. They were blaspheming the Son of God to his face. And he calls them out. You're dishonoring me. Verse 50, I don't seek my own glory. He's saying, even though you're, you're throwing the mud at me, even though you're dishonoring, I'm not going to strike back. I'm not going to return fire. I'm not going to defend my honor, my name, my glory, even though he deserves all honor and glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. One capitalized, meaning he's talking about God the Father. Saying God the Father, he sees it. He sees all. He will be the one that ensures Jesus receives his due and his honor and his exaltation. God sees everything. He judges whether or not people are honoring the Son. So let's not think for a minute that these people that are blaspheming Jesus to his face are getting away with it. Or that it's somehow okay. Or that it's not really that big of a deal. There will be a day of reckoning for all who dishonor the son. Jesus called him out on it. And then 51. Truly, truly. This is another one of those statements. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The truly, truly. This is like uh, Jesus putting it in, in all caps, in bold font, with yellow highlight over it, saying, look, pay attention. So we need to break it down. If anyone, literally anyone, 
not just Jews, not just Gentiles. It doesn't matter. Anyone, you, me, the old gang from high school, uh, the person who pulls up to you in the car and you, you just glance over and see them at the stoplight, somebody from Canada, somebody from New Zealand, somebody from the Philippines, somebody from Finland, anybody, anyone. If anyone keeps, that doesn't mean keep perfectly, only Christ is perfect. He means if you commit, aggressively commit to keeping and following Jesus Christ. If you set your rudder on a course towards Jesus Christ and you never leave it, if you, if you follow me, if you grow in the knowledge of the Lord, if you bring your life into conformity with Jesus, if you join yourself to him and never look back, keeps my word. This is the living word of God pointing to the written word of God. If you keep all, everything, the entirety, the whole of scripture, if you do that, he will never see death. It doesn't mean that believers will never experience death. Jesus experienced death. He's talking spiritual. So what does that mean? What does it mean to never see death spiritually? Number one, as soon as someone is called by God and regenerated, they are transferred from the spiritual kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. They, they go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And once there. They never go back. They never again see death. They never again see spiritual death. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They're done with that. They're done with spiritual death. From this point on, for eternity, you're in spiritual life. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Ephesians 2.5, even, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ. There's that dead alive language again. You're never again going to see. You pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. You never go back. That's the first thing. Number two, you will never experience what the Bible calls the second death. The second death is eternal punishment in hell. Revelation 20.14 then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Written in the book of life is another way of saying those who are in Christ, those who have placed their faith in him, his sheep, his called people. So whoever keeps Jesus' word, whoever follows him, Whoever believes in him will not experience this final penalty of death. They won't see it. They won't see eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. They're done with that because they're in Christ. That's what it means to never see death. You go from spiritual dead to spiritual life, and you don't experience the second death, eternal death. Well, are the Jews getting this yet? Are they thinking spiritually? Verse 53 no, no, they're still literal, physical. Because here's their response. They say, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? 
Who do you make yourself out to be? So they're thinking that Jesus means literal physical, like if you believe and keep my word, then you're just never going to die. You're just going to never experience death. You're never going to grow old, whatever that looks like to physically never die. Of course, he's not talking about that. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, excuse me, it is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. This is Jesus saying, look, if I made this claim by myself, if I was speaking independently, apart from the Father, if I was, had gone rogue and I was just kind of making stuff up, then yeah, then that wouldn't be valid. But there is an inseparable connection between the Father and the Son. He's the one that's granted me this status. He's the one who has sent me to be the Messiah. Verse 55, But you have not known him, If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. Again, he's being very direct. This is one of those instances where someone says, are you calling me a liar? Jesus says, yes, I am calling you a liar. You don't know God. I do, and I keep his word. You see, they thought they had special status before God because of their blood connection to Abraham. Jesus tells them, you don't even know him. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is telling them, look, Abraham, who you claim to be your your father, he would have no problem with what I'm saying. In fact, he would rejoice in what I'm saying. He would agree with what I'm saying. He He would give a hearty amen to what I am saying. Because Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God's promises and then he acted on it. That that was Abraham's life. He, He heard from God. He heard the word of God. He heard the promises of God. And then he took action. He lived based on those promises. By faith, Abraham knew that God would provide that ultimate sacrifice just as he provided the ram caught in the thicket. He knew that he would one day provide the sacrifice. So in that way, Abraham saw Jesus' day. He looked down time and across time saw Jesus' day. And he was glad. Verses 57 and 59, once again, the Jews don't understand that he's talking spiritually and about faith. Instead, they're confused. They think that Jesus is claiming to have seen Abraham because he's been alive, like incarnate that long. Now, it's true that Jesus is eternally existent, but Jesus had not become incarnate in the physical body until he was born of the Virgin Mary. So they're thinking, what, so you're, you've been alive since, since then? No, it had been over 1,800 years since Abraham had walked the earth. And so they're looking at Jesus going, what, you're like 30-something? How, how does that work? They're not hearing him. And his answer is this, another truly, truly statement. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, he didn't just say before Abraham was, I was, because that would kind of speak to their understanding of the fact that he was around then, walking the earth in an incarnate body. No, he uses the language, I am. And if you're familiar with scripture, then you already know where this is going. This is the personal name 
of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh God. This is the God of Israel. And by making this statement, Jesus is declaring to them, uh, no, what I mean is, I am God. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. I am the pre-existing God. I am the God that you worship. I am the God of Moses. I am the God of Abraham. I am the one who made covenant with Abraham. I am Yahweh God. I am the God of Israel. That's what he's telling them. And believe me, they got it. They got the message because look at their response. They picked up stones to throw in him. They broke out in a spontaneous mob violent action, a visceral explosive we want to kill you right now forget about judging forget about witnesses we're taking the law in our own hands we're going after you right now but he hid himself and went out of the temple and just as we have seen earlier in John it was not his hour so they could not harm him it was divinely protected spiritually death Let's summarize the passage and and get to the application. Here it is. Jesus addressed a group of Jews who had placed false, temporary, and surface belief in him, and he told them that the criteria for being a true disciple is abiding in his word. Only then would they have spiritual life and freedom. The Jews responded by pointing to their physical Abrahamic heritage as the basis for their spiritual standing before God. Jesus told them that they were of the devil and not of God. And that was why they were unable to hear and understand the things he was saying to them. Jesus declared that whoever keeps his word will never taste or see spiritual death. The Jews responded to Jesus' teaching by attempting to stone him. I said at the beginning, this passage contains a warning and words of assurance. Both. Remarkably, both. And the difference between this passage serving as a warning or as words of assurance hangs on whether or not someone is able to hear the word of God. It hangs on whether or not they are able to spiritually hear or if they are spiritually deaf. It hangs on whether or not they are of God or of the devil, in Christ or not in Christ, believer or not a believer. To the unbeliever who is not in Christ, this passage is a word of warning, and the warning is this. Your spiritual deafness, your inability to rightly hear and understand the word of God means that you are unable to abide or remain in it or keep it, which he says is a mark of a true disciple. So the warning is your spiritual deafness is causing you to remain spiritually dead. Your spiritual deafness is causing you to remain spiritually dead. Now, the good news of the gospel is this. God is able to heal spiritual deafness through a special operation of the Holy Spirit. 
God regenerates people's hearts, brings them to spiritual life, and gives them the ability to hear the Word of God rightly. God gives a person who is previously spiritually dead the ability to hear the conviction of their sin, the the truth that they stand condemned outside of Jesus Christ, and their need for a Savior. It allows them to, to have open ears, to hear the gospel fresh, and to hear the good news that if they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Their sin will be forgiven. Their their real sin that they have accumulated against God will be forgiven because Jesus will have paid the penalty for that sin on the cross. He took the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin upon himself. And also Jesus lived that perfectly righteous life that we could never live. We all have... uh, sinful, dirty hands. None of us are clean. The good news is that when we believe in Christ, His righteousness is imputed or credited to us so that God can declare us righteous based on the righteousness of Christ, not because we're good people. Drop that. Drop it. We're not good. You're not a good person. He declares us righteous on the righteousness of Christ, not ours. It's not because we've lived a good enough life. It's because Christ has lived a good enough life. And he pays the penalty for our sin for us on the cross. God opens our ears so we can hear that and turn to him. It involves three things. True belief involves three things. Knowledge. We need to hear those words. We need to hear them in the Bible, read them, or hear them proclaimed. We need to hear it. We need to believe it or give assent to it, meaning agree with it. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need Christ. And then we need to trust. And it's, it's the old illustration of the parachute and the airplane. You can be told that a parachute will save you if you jump out of an airplane. Say, okay, I've heard that message. You can believe it. Yeah, I believe that if someone jumps out of an airplane and they add a parachute on, they'll, they'll land safely. But it's not until you put the chute on and actually jump out of the plane, at that moment, you actually are trusting in the parachute to save your life. We need all three. We need to know it. We need to agree with it. And we need to trust Christ. We need to jump out of the plane. I'm all in. I'm following Christ from here on out. I'm doing what the Bible says. I'm following Christ. So that's a word of warning, but it also contains a hopeful message because of the gospel. But I also said this is a source of assurance. Just as a hearing test can serve two purposes. There was a a young family that had twins, twin girls. And they were suspecting that something was off. They weren't hitting their developmental markers. They 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 weren't seeming like they were totally on on track. And they wouldn't often respond to, to them calling their name. They, they thought there might be a hearing problem. So as soon as they were reliably able to sit in the sound booth, they brought into the soundproof booth, they put the little headphones on. As soon as you hear the tones, raise your hand. As soon as they were able to do that, they brought them both in for testing. Same test. One twin never raised her hand. Didn't understand what was asked of her. 
never raised her hand. The other twin seemed, seemed to get it, and then when they heard it, they could see recognition on her face, and she raised her hand. They came out after the full audiological workup, and they said, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is this, this daughter, completely healthy, normal hearing. This daughter, significant hearing loss. She's, she's technically what we would call deaf. And they said, well, why were they acting? Well, they were mirroring each other's behavior. They're twins. They, they had this long explanation. But the point is this. Same test, two different results. One confirmed deafness. The other revealed perfect hearing. It was a source of assurance. They were telling the parents, you have nothing to worry about. She's fine. And that's good news for a parent to hear. Likewise, this passage serves both as a warning as bad news, but it also serves as assurance. Same passage. All we need to do is look at what Jesus said is missing from these people, and if we can hear that in our life, then we should take that as assurance from Christ that we are one of his. So let's do that. Number one, the spiritually deaf and dead person is a slave to sin, which means the true disciple is free from the dominating and enslaving power of sin. The true disciple does not practice sin. Did you see that? Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So we're not talking about if sin is present. Sin is present in all our lives, whether you're a believer or not. He said practice sin, which means walking in sin, which means giving yourself over to sin. Enjoying sin, planning on sinning, recognizing that what you're doing is sin, and going ahead and doing it anyway, repeatedly, habitually. It's a part of your lifestyle. Practicing sin. But he says the one who practices sin is a slave to sin, but which means the true disciple is not practicing sin. The true disciple is not walking in sin. The true disciple sees something in Scripture and says, yeah, that's, that's sin. I'm going to do everything in my power with God's grace not to go there. The true disciple is fighting against sin. The true disciple does everything in their power to get, take concrete steps to eliminate sin from their life. Do you hear that in your life? Do you hear yourself fighting against sin? Do you hear yourself, do you hear this in your life where you experience it and it, 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 it cuts you? It bothers you to know that you're still sinning in Christ. You know it's a part of life until Christ returns, but it still bothers you. Are you hearing that in your life? If so, that is assurance that you are in Christ. That desire does not belong to someone who's outside of Christ. It belongs to those who are in Christ. So be assured. Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, there's that language again, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Obedience at the heart level. That's only found in someone who's following Christ. If you hear that, if you can raise your hand and say, I hear that, then that's a source of assurance. Number two, the spiritually deaf and dead person does not know, or excuse me, does not do the works of a faithful follower. Here's Jesus countering them. He says, if you were 
Abraham's spiritual children, you, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Well, what are the works that Abraham did? The works of a faithful follower. Someone who hears the word of God and then takes action on it. That was Abraham's life. I hear you, God. I hear your promises. Okay, I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to take action. I'm going to live that way according to your promises. That's how a faithful disciple lives. So the true disciple does do the works of a follower, a faithful follower of God. Can you hear that in your life? Is that present? Active church membership, is that present? Can you hear that in your life? Unless providentially hindered, you are in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Worshiping together as the body, serving one another, taking communion, hearing the word of God, authoritative proclaimed. Do you realize that God, Jesus Christ, has put this in place for your benefit, for your growth, and for your assurance? That's a big part of what the table is. Assurance of your status in Christ. Do you hear that? It's all-encompassing. It impacts your worldview. It impacts your parenting. Are you parenting according to Scripture? Are you raising your children in the faith? Are you teaching them the things of God? Are you correcting them? Are you disciplining them? Are you teaching them about what it means to follow Jesus Christ? It impacts us as a husband or a wife. Are we living out that that role of, of a husband or a wife according to Scripture? Do we desire that? How you conduct yourself at work? Do you conduct yourself with integrity? Are you above reproach? Or is this a kind of compartmentalized thing? You know, I'm a believer, but when I get to work, you know, it's business. So, do you hear that in your life? In your private life? How you act when no one's around? That's the real test, isn't it? When no one's around. God sees everything. Are you believing God? Are you acting on that belief? Do you hear that? If so, by God's grace, to the best of your ability. If so, be assured, you are in Christ. That's a, that's a characteristic of a believer. And finally, number three, the spiritually deaf and dead person does not love Jesus Christ. Jesus called them out on that. If God were your father, you would love me. The true disciple does love Jesus Christ. The spiritually deaf and dead person does not love Jesus Christ. They love themselves. They love the world and pursuing the things of the world. And they love their sin. But they don't love Jesus. The true disciple loves Jesus Christ. They've died to their self. They've been called out of the world. And they hate their sin. Do you see how polar opposite those two things are? Which one do you hear in, in your life? If you hear these things, if you're, if you're dying to yourself, if you hate your sin, if you recognize you've been called out of the world, be assured you are in Christ. Those things are not present in unbelievers. We love Jesus Christ. How do we know we love Jesus Christ? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. That's pretty straightforward. That's, that's pretty black and white. In John 21, at the end of this book, Jesus reinstates Peter after his denial. He asks him, do you love me? Three times. 
And Jesus says, yes, of course, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And then he tells them two things. He says, feed my sheep. That's not universal. Um, that's for Peter. We're not all called to be apostolic leaders of the first century church. That's for Peter. But then he says something else. Follow me. That is for us. That is for us. We are to follow Christ. If we love him, we are to follow him. So I hope we're starting to get the picture. I want to bring in everything. This is one final scoop up of the last of the entire chapter of, of John 8. We're going to bring it all together. Um, true disciples love Jesus, follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, obey Jesus' word at any cost, keep his word, keep his commandments. They're set free from sin. They die to themselves. They do the works of faithful followers and they give him their unqualified allegiance. If this is you, if you can, when you hear those things, if you can raise your hand to those tones, then you're passing the hearing test. Spiritual hearing. And God wants you to know you are one of his sheep. Satan likes to plant seeds of doubt in the minds of believers. He wants them to question their salvation, which causes them to be unsteady, which causes them to be more prone to giving in to temptation. The Lord wants you to be assured in your salvation. He wants you to know with certainty. That's the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. I want you to know for certain, with certainty. If you hear these things in your life, you are spiritually alive, your sins are forgiven. And you belong to Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for telling us and revealing to us what it looks like to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray this morning that those who have these things in their life would be assured, that they would have the rock-solid assurance that their sins are forgiven. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who cannot raise their hand, who, who don't see these things in their life, they should be warned. And they need to take action immediately. They need to repent of their sin, turn to Christ in faith, and never look back. Father, we pray for these things in faith, trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen.